0: All right, if you got a Bible, go ahead, open it up to Revelation chapter 19. Today we're going to be reading verses 11 through 21 this morning. Uh, this morning, as we just heard, was is the first Sunday in the season of Advent. Now, I understand for some of us, we grew up with various church traditions. Others of us grew up with really kind of no church context at all. And so what is the season of Advent? Uh, A lot of us have probably understood this season as a time where we uh, count down the days and the weeks until we get to celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Um, That was for me how I had always, probably my whole life, understood the time of Advent up until a couple of years ago. I read a really helpful book by a woman named Fleming Rutledge. And in it, she explains how actually for centuries, uh, Christians had understood Advent as a time not to primarily look back to the first coming of Jesus, but actually to look forward to the second coming of Jesus, his second Advent. Uh, Historically, Christians like the Protestant reformer Martin Luther used Advent as a time to look forward to the second coming of Jesus in light of his first coming and ask the question, what does it mean for us today living in between these two times? Now, to be clear if that is not how you've understood Advent your whole life, that's okay, right? There is no verse in the Bible that says this is how you have to observe the season of Advent. In fact, there is no verse in the Bible that says you have to observe Advent at all. However, here's why I think this slightly more historical, traditional take on the season is helpful. Uh, In a consumer culture that we live in, where the time of Advent, December, the weeks leading up to Christmas can very easily get overrun uh, with sentimentality and nostalgia, I think this more traditional understanding of the season, I think it cuts through all of that. And it confronts us with the deep questions of life. Like, "Where is my life going? Where is our world going? And what could Jesus Christ have to say about all of that? And so, to set our minds on this, what we're going to be doing is for the next four Sundays, we're going to be looking at the last four chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is a book of prophecy, It's written by the Apostle John to a series of churches in Asia, and through vivid pictures and imagery, John is showing them and us what the return of Jesus will ultimately mean for our world and for you and me here today. And so, with your Bibles out, read with me Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, about the second advent of Christ. John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together, For the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the white horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. All right, so a light little passage for us to welcome ourselves into the season of Advent. You know, this is one of those ones I always think you can just kind of curl up with a warm mug, a hot chocolate, and read to the kids at night before they go to bed. There are a lot of doctrines in the Bible that for modern people living in Winter Park today, like you and me, are particularly hard to believe. Uh, things like uh, the miracles of Jesus, uh, the virgin birth, his resurrection, but I think, actually, uh, in my experience, the, the passage topic today of God's final judgment I think is the hardest thing for modern, Western, enlightened people living in Winter Park like you and me today to believe. Because unlike the other things I just mentioned, there's not only an intellectual barrier in embracing the idea of God's final judgment, there's also an emotional barrier too. And when the two of those come together, it can make something like we just read in Revelation 19 seem impossible for any reasonable person living today to actually believe and embrace. Which I think makes it even more shocking and scandalous then that the apostle John is writing this passage as an encouragement. John wrote Revelation 19 not to spark a debate to the churches he's writing it to, but actually fill them with a sense of hope. Now, how can that be? Well, the churches John's writing to were a series about seven small, struggling churches who were facing systematic persecution from the Roman government, False teaching is leading people down all these hurtful, harmful paths. And friends and family walking away from their faith, all because of the social pressure that was at that time. And so it's in the midst of all of that that John gives them this picture of God's final judgment through Christ at the end of time to encourage them. And he wrote it to us for the same reason, too. So the question becomes, how today... For modern enlightened people like you and me, how can a doctrine like this, that to us today seems so intellectually and emotionally offensive, how can we, though we'll still wrestle with parts of it, ever, like the people John's writing to, find a sense of hope in it? Well, we can't touch on all the little parts of it uh, today. But I think to do that, if we want to do it, there's two things in particular we need to see in this passage. We need to see the advent of the judge and we need to see the triumph of the judgment. So first, let's look at the advent of the judge. Uh, About 10 years ago, Uh, the HBO show The Sopranos had its last episode ever, the whole series. Now, you got to remember, this is before Netflix, Amazon Prime. You get a whole series out in one day. You can binge watch it all in one afternoon. It wasn't this at all, right? For eight years, one week at a time, people entered into the story of The Sopranos until it was all finally coming to an end. And if you've seen it, in the final scene... The last episode, Tony Soprano, the mobster, the main character in the show, is sitting in a diner with his family, and this strange man in a brown leather jacket walks in, sits down at a table, looks over at the Sopranos. He gets up, he goes back into the bathroom, the front door opens, Tony Soprano looks up, screen goes black. Eight years, and that's how it ends. And the 12 million people who were watching this lost their collective minds. Like, it, Google went crazy on, like, chat rooms and stuff. What, what just happened? Is Tony dead? Is he alive? This is it? No resolution? No end of the story? Eight years and this is all we got? Why? Why was it so hard? Because we all have this innate desire in us to know how a story ends. And what John's doing here in the last couple chapters of Revelation is showing the churches he's writing to who were facing physical, social, spiritual harm, hurt, oppression. He's showing them how the story of the world ends in the return of Jesus Christ. And in this passage in particular, what we're looking at this morning, he pictures for us how Jesus will return first to judge all evil. So look with me at what we see in the advent of the judge. Now, before we dive in, maybe as a caveat here, uh, Revelation uh, is literally saturated with references to the Old Testament. Too many than we would cover this morning, unless we all wanted to cancel our lunch and dinner plans. So, what I'm going to do is look at some of the particularly relevant ones to the message uh, that John's looking at, uh, showing us here this morning. But I think in particular, there's three things that we can see in the advent of the judge. That when Jesus returns as judge, he'll come in power, with authority, and for his people. So first, he'll come in power. John says um, in verse 11 that Jesus, this rider on a white horse, which is a picture of victory, who's called faithful and true, who will judge with justice, he says in verse 12, has eyes that are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Now, throughout the book of Revelation, the apostle John describes various evil characters Uh, wearing crowns. Uh, People like the dragon, the beast that are pitchers for the devil, pitchers for evil. And the crowns are a symbol of their self-proclaimed authority and power in the world. And John always makes a point to list out the specific number of crowns that each one of these characters is wearing. Seven crowns, ten crowns. But when we get to Jesus here, John doesn't list the number at all. No, instead, he says Jesus comes wearing a multitude of multitude of crowns, more than any other character in the book, as a picture of his true, absolute, supreme power over the false power of evil in our world. So first, he comes in power. Second, he comes with authority. In verse 15, John says, coming out of his mouth, is a sharp sword with which he'll use to strike down the nations. And then quoting Psalm 2, he says, he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, the sword that's coming out of Jesus' mouth and the scepter that he's holding are images for God's word, which John here says Jesus will use to strike down the nations. Now, he's not talking about literally, physically destroying them. He's he's referring back, making this allusion back to Isaiah 11, where it says that God's Messiah will strike down the evil nations by pronouncing them guilty, declaring them guilty for all the evil things that they've done. Which John further goes on to describe here as treading on the winepress of the fury of God, which is also an image from the book of Isaiah where the wrath of God will judge evil by his word like someone stomps out grapes in a winepress. In other words, what John is saying here is that Jesus at his second coming will act on behalf of God with the full authority of God to declare guilty, to pronounce guilty all the evil and oppression and injustice and hurt and harm and wrong in our world forever. So he comes in power with authority. Third, he comes for a people. In verse 14, John says that as Jesus comes... To judge all evil, the armies of heaven were following behind him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, some people think that this could be referring to angels here. I think um, that's possible, but I think it's probably more likely referring to who he talks about in a very similar passage. Back in chapter 17, John says that evil will wage war against Jesus, but he will triumph over them. Because, like in our passage, he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, his chosen, and his faithful followers. In other words, what John's saying is that Jesus, as judge, comes back ultimately for his people, who he loves, who he cherishes. Who he gave up his own life for. He comes back to vindicate them for every act of evil, every act of harm and hurt that's ever been done to you. Now, let me ask you this. When you're wronged, when someone's hurt you, when you're experiencing some sort of physical or social or spiritual hurt and oppression and injustice— Isn't what John's describing here just the type of person that you hope would remember you and come and defend you? Someone with that power, that authority, and that love for you. You see, in the midst of the oppression and the harm and the hurt that we experience every day and that the churches that John was writing to experienced even more so, it can be very easy for us to lose hope that anyone is ever coming to help us. But that can look a couple different ways. For some of us, I think losing hope can look like just giving in to despair. Uh, Someone's wronged you, they've ridiculed you, they insult you, maybe because of your faith, maybe because of your race, maybe because of your gender. And in that moment you think, I don't know what to do. I feel completely powerless. I feel like I have zero authority to change this situation at all. I guess I just have to kind of give in Accept what they're saying about me is true, and assume whatever role they're forcing me into right now. But for some others of us, uh, losing hope that there is a judge in Jesus Christ who has all power, all authority, all love for you can look very different. It doesn't look like lying down and taking it. It looks like fighting back. We think, no one's sticking up for me, so guess what? I got to stick up for myself i got to take matters into my own hands. If someone wronged me, I'm going to wrong them back twice as bad. If you say this hurtful thing about me, I've got ten hurtful things that I'm ready to fire back at you right in this second. But we do it not as a way to protect our own human dignity. No, we do it as a way to we want to judge that person so that they'll never do that to us again. And what John is showing us here in the advent of the judge is actually we don't have to do either. Because in the end, Jesus returns in power with authority and for his people to judge every act of evil, every act of hurt, every act of harm and impression and injustice that's ever been done in our world. So first we see the advent of the judge. Second, see the triumph of the judgment. Starting in verse 17, John shows the final victory that Jesus as judge will have over evil in our world. And first we see this judgment announced. In verse 17, John says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small." Now the angel's invitation here in verse 17 uh, to come gather together for the uh, great supper of God is actually this ironic and really horrific parallel to what was said just earlier in the chapter where the angel tells all the people, come, gather together for the great supper of the Lamb. There, it was a feast of God's mercy, celebrating His salvation. Here, it's a feast of God's judgment, where John says birds will pick away at the bodies of people who stood against God. Now, he doesn't mean that literally. He's referring back to this prophecy in the book of Ezekiel where God says that he will finally judge his enemies by his word and his judgment over them will be so comprehensive, so complete that you could liken it to an army who is so utterly destroyed in battle that there's literally nothing left of them and they're lying on the ground as birds pick away at their bodies. And after we see this judgment announced, John then shows us the judgment achieved. In verse 19, he sets the stage. He says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and all their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. What John's lining up for us here is the long-awaited final battle between good and evil, between God and his enemies. This is the tension that has been building all throughout the Bible, that we can see all throughout our lives, that's present in every act of evil all throughout our world. Here, it's finally coming to a head, only it's not much of a fight. I mean, mean, if this was like a pay-per-view boxing match, you'd want your money back because it's over from the word go. In verse 20, after all this tension builds, John says, But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them, says, are thrown alive into a fiery lake of burning sulfur, and what we see in this passage here, what we see in this verse, is John is showing us the who, the how, and the where of God's final judgment. The how is the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus, which is again, as I said, is an image for God's word. That Jesus will use God's word to accuse, to pronounce guilty all the evil in our world. The who, though, is not some just kind of ambiguous evil. It's Satan. It's the devil. But it's not just him alone. Now, John says, everyone who bears his mark will be judged too. Which in Revelation is a figurative way of saying everyone who, not by living in faith in Jesus, instead, knowingly or unknowingly, imitates and follows after all the harmful, destructive things that Satan does. And the where? The lake of burning sulfur, which is a picture for hell. The place of final judgment. That will be so intense. The only way that we can describe it is like living in fire. Fire. In other words, it will be a complete triumph of God's judgment. So are you confident where you'll stand in it? Right now, do you know which feast you'll be enjoying? The one of God's mercy or the one of his judgment? And now this is where you might be saying, all right, pump the brakes here. I was tracking with you in the first point where we talked about Jesus coming back, and you even slightly had me on board with the fact that, you know what, this could be a good thing in my life if Jesus were to finally come back and judge all evil. But now you get here, and now you start talking about how anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is destined to an eternity of wrath and judgment, conscious, excruciating pain. I thought you said God was a God of love in the first point this doesn't seem very loving at all. In fact, it seems like one big contradiction. How can a God of love also be a God of judgment? That's a good question. But let's start with the first part here. If you're thinking that right now, you are right to demand that God be a God of love. The Bible calls God a God of love. The Bible says God created the world as an overflow of his love, that he made you, me, everything that we see as a vessel to receive his love. And that any loving thing that we do, any loving thing you and I do, actually comes from God because he's the source of all love. In fact, the Bible goes even so far as to say God is so full of loveliness in his being that he's the definition of love. If you want to know what true love is, go and look at God, because He is love. So is God a God of love? Absolutely. You shouldn't settle for anything less. So the question then becomes, is God's love antithetical to His judgment? Uh, Becky Pippert, in her book Hope Has Its Reasons, asks this question first about ourselves. Listen to what she says. She says, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. She says, Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? No. Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath, she says, is not a cranky explosion, but a settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Did you hear what she said there? God's judgment isn't opposite his love. It's the outcome of his love. Hate For you, me, our creation would be indifference. That is the direct opposite of what John is showing us here in Revelation 19. No, God's final judgment isn't hate. And it's not even human anger like mine, which is uh, more often than not petty and selfish, really just the product of my own self-love. No, what we see is God's perfect love manifesting itself. In his just judgment of all evil, of as Pippert says, the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. Meaning that if we want to believe in a God of love, then we have to have the intellectual integrity to let that God also be a God of judgment. If you erase God's judgment, you have now erased his love. So you might be saying, well, then wait. All right, okay, so God's understanding of judgment, right and wrong and all that comes from his love. Well, I'm a loving person too. You know, it might not come from the Bible, but I have a sense of right and wrong. I have a sense of judgment and justice and a fairness and equality that I stand up for. So why does God get to have the final say? That doesn't really seem fair. Let me ask you, where where does your sense of right and wrong come? come from. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a 19th century German philosopher, hated Christianity, hated it. At the same time, pointed out to people at his time that you can't remove God out of your life and keep the same moral framework. For people living in the West who grew up in kind of a Christianized world, he says it's impossible. He says when we do that, and we say, no, it's okay, because my understanding of right and wrong, uh, the way that I kind of judge things and the, the justice I understand in the world, it actually comes from nature. Nietzsche says, well, have you seen nature? I mean, have you watched Animal Planet lately? It's brutal. It's kill or be killed. It's survival of the fittest. No, it doesn't come from nature. You can't get any sense of love, sacrificial love from nature. So he says, really what you end up with is this culturally informed understanding of right and wrong. And so, Nietzsche asked people in his time then, what happens when your culturally informed understanding of right and wrong, when you meet someone from a different culture with a different understanding of right and wrong, something that happens all the time here in Winter Park? Well, Nietzsche says, what happens is that since neither of your understandings of right and wrong that you use to judge the world, since neither of those are rooted in anything beyond our cultures, he says what happens is you will end up using power to impose your sense of right and wrong onto somebody else and in the end oppressing them through your culturally informed understanding of how you should judge the world. I mean, this is the type of thing that we can see with the secularism bill that was passed in Quebec back in June. Now, I'm not going to go into all the politics of it. I don't know all the politics of it, all right? I have a list of, you know, things that get me interested, and Canadian politics is not one of them. But one of the things that happened, one of the things that it said was this, that for countless people, you can no longer wear any sort of religious symbol to your job. Meaning that now countless people can no longer wear their turban, their hijab, their yarmulke, their cross, to work. Why? Because certain people, through their certain culturally informed sense of right and wrong, are judging the world around them, imposing that onto other people, and through that, oppressing countless people of various different faiths. You see, what we need today is a final judgment that's rooted in something outside of us. And what John the Apostle is showing us here is that the best place to find that is in Jesus Christ. That secular judgment is built on self-love and it ends up just creating more oppression. But God's judgment, God's final judgment, is built on sacrificial love and it abolishes oppression. Now, which might sound a little confusing because nothing uh, in this passage has really seemed sacrificial at all, right? You see, what you've got to understand is for the Apostle John, the book of Revelation, the thing that the book of Revelation, that the story of the Bible, that the history of the world, all is really all hanging on for him, isn't Jesus' second coming. And power and authority, but his first coming and weakness and humility. When Jesus will come first, not to judge, but be judged. When he came not for a crown of power, but for a crown of thorns. When he came to be lifted up, not in majesty on a white horse, but in shame on a Roman cross. When he came first to be seen, not figuratively in the blood of his enemies, but literally bleeding out for his enemies when he came not to bring inescapable judgment, but God's irresistible mercy. And this is what we get to sing this time of year. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald the angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. I mean, this is why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is not primarily figured as this warrior, this conquering warrior who comes to judge the earth. No, the main way that John shows Jesus in this book is as a lamb who's cut open and slain. You see, it's this sacrificial love of the cross of Christ where he came first to endure all the weight of God's judgment for your sin to taste the fire of God's wrath that we deserved, to withstand the accusation of God's word that we were meant to hear. It's this sacrificial love of the Father through his Son that changes everything. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 9. He says, uh, Since we have now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' blood, how much more then? Shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? In other words, by faith in Jesus, judgment can never be the end of your story. Period. And when like the Apostle John, we see how God's love Doesn't just send Jesus at the end of time to bring judgment on sinners, but sent his son first at Christmas time to bear judgment for sinners. When we see his second advent in light of his first, it changes everything. It means now, though we may still wrestle with certain parts of the, the, the doctrine of God's final judgment, which should never be easy, should never be a simple thing for any of us to swallow. It means we can ultimately be filled with a sense of hope in it. Hope that allows us to respond to the physical and the social and the spiritual hurt and harm and oppression that we all encounter. Not by giving in and accepting it, or by taking matters into our own hands. Responding evil with evil. No, but while upholding justice, showing grace means that we can respond like Jesus who was insulted and ridiculed and mocked for his faith and in one sense stood up and said, what you're doing isn't right. This is not how humans were meant to be treated. And yet at the same time, in the height of the injustice, could cry out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How? How? Because Jesus knew where the story was going, and so do we. That the God who will bring final judgment first bore my judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the message of Advent. That you will send your son in glory and power and authority at the end of time to judge all evil, just like you sent him at Christmas time in weakness and humility and shame to bear the judgment. Spirit, we pray that you would press this word into our hearts now as we prepare to experience this word in the Lord's Supper spend some moments in quiet reflection as we prepare for communion.